If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com slash silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Back in our June edition, we ran an extended feature on history's greatest mysteries. That was accompanied by a poll in which we asked you to vote for your favourite. Well, we've gathered the results, and in this week's episodes, we're going to be exploring the top five with the experts who nominated them. We begin today with What is the Voynich Manuscript Trying to Tell Us?, which came fifth in our poll. That was originally nominated by Elmer Brenner, a historian of medicine based at Wellcome Collection, and she spoke to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. 
we asked readers to vote for history's greatest mystery. Uh, and this week, we're looking at the top five enigmas that people would love to see solved. Um, so in fifth place is the mystery nominated by Elmer Brenner, the Voynich Manuscript. So thanks so much for joining us today, Elmer. And, and perhaps you could just start by introducing listeners to this mysterious manuscript. Yeah, well, I was keen to write about it because it is something I'm very curious about. And it's something that no one, certainly at least right now or really since people first started looking at it at it in the 17th century, no one has had the answer to it. So it really is a genuine historical mystery. And it's something that possibly may never be solved as well. Um, it's the, the mystery lies really in the fact that the it's a manuscript with very copious amounts of text in it, but the text is in a script that is indecipherable. And people have tended to think that this is a code for a language that does exist, um, any kind of language really, but primarily people have thought about European languages, but they just haven't been able to work it out. So they haven't been able to map it onto an existing language. When was this manuscript first discovered, as far as we know? So it seems to have been kind of discovered more than once, I guess. Um, it first was being talked about in the first part of the 17th century, at a point in time where it had clearly been found at the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. And it had passed to one of his pharmacists, who was someone he clearly favoured. And then it was the, in the hands of an alchemist um, who really tried to find out more about it and who sort of shared it among his intellectual circles and with people who were looking at things like Egyptian hieroglyphics um, in case they could work out what the script said. Um, and that was the first moment. So I should also say that the manuscript itself, it's pretty clear, um, dates from the 15th century. So it's a late medieval manuscript. And in many ways, it fits very comfortably into the genre of late medieval manuscripts. So in some ways, it's very kind of sort of normal looking. And in other ways, it's extremely strange. Um, so obviously, there's this moment in the 17th century where there's great interest and there are intellectuals trying to kind of figure it out. Then things go very quiet. And then at the very end of the 19th century, it is found among the possessions of the Jesuits in Rome. And at that point, um, through quite a protracted process, it's finally purchased by a London bookseller um, of Lithuanian origin called Wilfred Voynich, who purchased it in 1912. And since then, it's been known as the Voynich Manuscript. What, what did he make of it? What's known about what he made of it initially? Yeah, so he um, he was a very interesting figure who had um, kind of built up his business from scratch. And he'd originally been dealing in fairly cheap early printed books and had moved into the realm of medieval manuscripts because they were more lucrative. They were rarer objects. And this was the ultimate in a rare object because it was extremely strange. Um, it was also visual. So the other key thing to say about it is that it's absolutely packed with illustrations. And so it's got that real kind of um, impact factor on that side. And that also is actually the area that helps us to gain a sense of what it could be about. Um, so he basically himself started trying to decipher it um, and was on a mission to do that from an early stage. So can we talk a little bit more about some of those visual elements then? Because there are some really, really fascinating images in this manuscript, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the thing that 
really gives us that access point today. Um, it has wonderful and very strange illustrations and many, many illustrations of plants um, showing their roots and showing flowers and other aspects. Um, also illustrations of um, astronomical systems, so things that look like the constellations of stars as well. And then the strangest section of all is um, a section with many, many images of water systems, um, kind of pipings and small lakes and things like that, with nude female figures in them, um, sort of moving around in different situations. Um, and that's a section that people have puzzled over a great deal. Um, the other thing about it is that what's really kind of intriguing is that um, these illustrations, a bit like the text actually, which I could say a bit more about the script, um, they look like they're within reach. So we look at it and we think, okay, those are plants. And there's a, a key genre of medieval manuscript is the herbal, where you have um, drawings of plants with information about their medicinal qualities. And it, it, there are many indications that this manuscript is medical um, and the, the, the appearance of plants is, is part of that. But no one has been able to identify these plants. So we can't look at that and say, oh, OK, that's an ivy plant or that's a fuchsia plant. We just can't work out what they are. So they're sort of within reach, but actually totally out of reach as well. Yeah, it's becoming clear why this is such a tantalising mystery. Um, and you mentioned already that Voynich himself obviously tried to initially solve this code, but it's also attracted a fair few great minds as well to it, quite famous minds. What can you say about the people who tried to solve it since then? Yeah, well, this is something which also gives it an interesting 20th century history, actually, um, that um, so Voynich, um, having been in London, was moving increasingly into the US um, as his market after the First World War and um, based himself over there ultimately. And he got in touch fairly early on, I think in the 1920s, with a group of cryptanalysts or cryptographers who are basically code breakers who were working for the US government um, and in particular a married couple um, William and Elizabeth Friedman who would go on to play a really significant role in the US during the Second World War for code breaking about Japanese military activities and already in the 1920s, this couple got very interested. They were people who had literary interests themselves. Um, Elizabeth was a Shakespeare scholar, which is quite interesting. So on the one hand, she's doing government work because of her skills. On the other hand, she's interested in the past and in kind of works of literature. Um, and they basically made it a real project and they worked on it together for really about 40 years. And what's really remarkable here is that if you think about people who are really at the top of their game, who are expert code breakers, who um, decipher codes for the US government, and they just couldn't decipher this code of this manuscript. Um, and they, they really, um, towards the end of their lives, they, they admitted this, and they published what they had found, and they acknowledged that they hadn't cracked the code. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. And, and I think I skipped us ahead just a bit there because you mentioned this this marvellous imagery, but uh, you were going to talk a little bit about the text as well. 
That's right. Um, I was really going to say that, obviously, you look at the images, and as I've said, you think, ah, oh, I think I might know what that is. And then you realise, no, it's, it's very curious. The text itself, um, and I know that there was a great reproduction in BBC History magazine of a little bit of the text with the images. You look at it and you think, ah, oh, well, I might be able to work that out. It looks kind of, you know, it looks like some kind of European script. Um, um, the lettering looks kind of recognisable. You, there's quite a lot of things that look like a double L, for instance. Um and yet, no, you can't work it out. So it's it's almost as if the person who created it was playing quite an elaborate game um, and that they, they really thought this would be quite fun to make something that sort of is, is in your reach and then suddenly out of reach. Um, and, and what's really interesting is that um, the general idea of a cipher would be that... Um, Letters are substituted for other letters and then other kinds of symbols are thrown in and possibly the arrangement is mixed up or things are added to make it more complicated. Um, the, the Freedmans used early computers to assist them in their analysis, which is interesting too, to try and kind of un unravel all of that. But even all of those kinds of methods just don't produce a solution. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. A hundred years ago, we couldn't carbon date the parchment, and now we can. So I think we shouldn't give up hope about learning more about it. We may never learn everything about it, but maybe that was never meant to be in the first place. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. And what do you make of um, kind of other suggestions of of it being a, a hoax or even a hoax by Voynich himself? Yeah, I mean, obviously that is is something that's definitely come up. Um, the first thing to say about that is that um, the material aspects of the manuscript come into play here. And what and that really that is arguably the area that we're able to find out the most about today. Um, modern analysis has has been able to conclusively show that the parchment that the manuscript is made of definitely dates from the 15th century. And also that the the inks and the pigments also date from the late medieval period. Um, so that makes it much harder to think about it as a hoax. Um, it's, of course, possible that Voynich or another individual in the early 20th century got hold of some blank parchment from the 15th century. That's definitely possible. Um, I think the ink and the pigments make that harder to believe. The other interesting thing is to think about... Um, the amount of parchment used. Um, so it's quite a small manuscript, which is significant in terms of thinking about who made it and how they used it. But it has a great deal of fold-outs, so um, particular leaves where actually you open it and it folds out several times, which means that there's a lot of parchment being used, which makes it harder to envisage how someone could have got hold of that amount of parchment to make it in the early 20th century. Before we, we started recording, um, we were chatting that the Voynich isn't the only perplexing manuscript from this period by any stretch. Um, what can you tell us about the mysteries of other medieval manuscripts out there? 
Yeah, well, it's this is um, something to think about, really, to place it in its broader context, I guess. Um, so undoubtedly, it is the, the most mysterious manuscript that I know of. But other manuscripts of its genre, um, so medical and scientific manuscripts, quite often contain information or aspects that are curious and that we can't fully understand today. Um, so an example, I guess, would be quite a different type of manuscript and um, that we have at Wellcome Collection in London, known as the Wellcome Apocalypse. Um, which is another manuscript really packed with illustrations. It's much larger than the Voynich manuscript, so possibly created within the context of a monastic community rather than by an individual, as I think the Voynich manuscript probably was. Um, but it contains a whole array of um, religious and medical information that doesn't clearly um, relate, and different things don't clearly relate to each other. Um, and some of it is quite obscure, particularly some kind of moral and allegorical texts and, and stories. And the other thing about it that makes me think of the Voynich manuscript, but here the problem can be solved, I guess, is that um, the script um, looks accessible. It looks very legible. Whenever you try to decipher it, it's incredibly difficult. So you kind of, you almost you zoom in and then you realise, ah, oh, this is so difficult. However, the script is written in a mixture of German and Latin, and researchers are able to work out what it says. So it's not, not the same conundrum. Um, but I do think there's, there's some kind of um, comparison that can be made there. Um, and the other thing to think about really is, is the area of, of magical and alchemical manuscripts, um, which were produced particularly at the end of the Middle Ages. And were intended by the people who produced them to be secretive. And so information was quite often presented in an allegorical form, for instance. And it has been postulated that the section of very strange drawings of nude women in water systems in the Voynich manuscript is allegorical, so that it represents another kind of knowledge and that has been kind of encoded into those images. Um, and alchemical manuscripts are full of that kind of material that is incredibly out of reach and unless you spend a very long time studying that field and really acquainting yourself. Um, but I should say also that although alchemical manuscripts are the ultimate in, in the mysterious and the secretive, it is not generally believed that the Voynich manuscript deals with alchemy. So that's, mm. it's a kind of obvious conclusion, but but generally specialists don't believe that. You mentioned in the answer as well that um, it's unlikely it would have been, uh, it's likely that it would have been produced by an individual rather than a group. Um, what 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 leads what leads people to that? What what was known about who might have written it? Yeah. So again, that's our other mystery: is that we've got we've got on the one hand no idea who this person was. On the other hand, we do think it was probably one person. Um, the script is very uniform. Um, the other thing that people have noticed, which is a, which is quite intriguing, is that there are no mistakes or corrections, which is very unusual for a medieval manuscript. Medieval scribes were human and they made mistakes as they wrote and they corrected them um, or excised the error. And even though this is a strange and unknown script, whoever was well-versed in it did not make a mistake, um, which is a quite noticeable. It seems that it's the same person who 
um, did the drawings as well as writing the script. Um, the drawings on some pages definitely came first because the text is written around them. And sometimes the text interacts very closely with the drawing, which makes you really think it's the same person. Um, but the key thing for me, actually, is the size of it. Um, it's pretty small. Um, so it's really like a kind of pocket-sized... It's not pocket-sized, it's not that small, but it's it's a, a handbook, a bit like a penguin paperback that you could easily carry around with you. And volumes that size are, are usually personalised. Um, so it's something that was for one individual, for practical use, potentially, um, but just for them. And that's what I find really interesting because I think possibly they never envisaged anyone else deciphering this because they never expected anyone else to read it. So it really was so secretive that it was just in the mind of one person. So if our listeners, any of our listeners fancy tackling it, they, they can download a digital image, I think, um, from from the Beinecke Rare Book Manuscript Library. Um, would you advise people having a go, having a look? I think this is an open field. And I think, you know, I think someone might one day look at it and be able to work it out. So I would definitely invite people to have a look. I think also it's a wonderful thing to look at. Um, and it's great that there are digital images available from the Beinecke Library um, so that people can see it. So I definitely advise that, yes. A really fascinating document. And um, it, what is there anything else that you would like people to, to know about or think about when they think about this document? I guess it's the fact that um, we may never fully understand these artefacts from the past. And for me, that's not a problem, actually. I think it's so remarkable that they survive and that we can look at them and that we can still learn key things about them today and that we can keep learning about them. So it's really a living object. Um, I think the recent um, kind of scientific research into it really shows us that. I mean, certainly a hundred years ago, we couldn't carbon date the parchment and now we can. So I think we shouldn't give up hope about learning more about it. We may never learn everything about it but maybe that was never meant to be in the first place. That was Elmer Brenner. You can read the original nominations for all 20 mysteries on our website at historyextra.com forward slash greatest dash mystery. Well, that's about it for today. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when we'll be revealing what came forth in our poll. (laughs) Thank you.